I'd like to read to you a, a list of names from history. Some of these names will sound familiar, some won't. Now, the names on this list are, are all quite different, yet they all have one thing in common. Giovanni de Veranzano, Christopher Columbus, Juan Ponce de Leon, John Cabot, Henry Hudson. All of these men hailed from different nations, different nationalities. They shared different goals. They suffered different fates. But they all have one thing in common. Each of them got lost, and each made a world-changing discovery when he did. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, we're going to encounter Jesus and his disciples. These disciples have been following Jesus for some time. They've listened to his teaching. They've witnessed his miracles. Yet, they've been lost. They continue to be lost. They're confused about who Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus stilled a a brutal storm, and they asked, what kind of man is this? In chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus warned them against false teaching. They thought he preached about baked goods. In our next chapter, Jesus will predict his fate. Quote, they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask. Yet in this lostness, in our fog, the grace of Christ abounds. He takes the disciples. He takes you and I when we go spiritually adrift, when we get a little lost in this life, and he gives us grace. He shepherds us. He gently teaches and he gently corrects and he does this in the thickest of fogs. Our journey through the Gospel of Matthew records the ministry of Jesus. He's not only come here to, to live and to die, but he's prepared those disciples who would come on after him. Eleven disciples. These eleven disciples, incredibly lost at times, they would be his vessels of mercy to an entire world. Today's message is a good one for us. Because like those disciples, we walk close to Christ. You and I can tell stories of encounters with his word, how it struck us at just the right time in just the right way. We can tell stories of the life-changing difference it is meant to be a Christian. But we all have stories also of how we've got lost. And I'm a little late coming to you with a New Year's message. We're a few weeks in. But I feel like i got to try. So I want to assume this morning that you're going to hit some bumps in this year. That in the year ahead, you're going to have some rocky times. You may have already had those times being a few weeks in. Many of us this year are going to struggle with sin or with suffering. 
We're going to feel the effects of living in a fallen world. Lost happens. But when it does, believer, you have Jesus the Christ. This Christ who meets us in the thickest of fogs, in the the densest of lostness. And this morning, we're going to unearth three discoveries from the life of Christ. These will be important reminders for us when we go astray. Well, let's begin with the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus, verses 13 through 17. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 16. I want to pick up in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When you get lost, rediscover the person of Jesus. Jesus opens here with a question Who do people say that the Son of Man is? I think if Guinness, those holders of world records, if they had a world record for an icebreaker, this would be the question. He gets the conversation started. Jesus speaks of himself. He says, son of man. That's his self-designation. He refers to himself this way. Who do people say that I am? That would be another way of asking the question. The disciples have answers. They read their feeds They know what people say of Jesus. There's a variety of views that exist. They list some of them at any rate. Notice what they list. They all tend to be very positive views of Jesus. Again, they're putting Jesus on par with famous prophets. None of these views tend to be negative. Back in chapter 10, verse 25, the Pharisees called Jesus Satan That's not happening here. The general public doesn't see him that way. Yet none of these views pegs Jesus as Messiah. None of the views that they give, none of the answers they offer, they don't go far enough, at least not yet. The disciples mention four views. The first, verse 14, you're John the Baptist. Herod thought this. This is what haunted Herod, that Jesus might be John the Baptist. Remember, it was Herod who had John the Baptist killed. Back in chapter 14, verse 2, Herod says, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And like John, Jesus preached the key to heaven. Both John and Jesus preached a message of repentance. Chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So people thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist. They had similarities. Others thought he could be Elijah. The return of this Old Testament prophet 
was predicted at the end of the Old Testament that Elijah would come again. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The crowds knew that, that Jesus was different. They thought perhaps that he is the fulfillment of that prediction. Yet others thought Jeremiah, a third offering. Jeremiah preached judgment. Back in chapter 11, Jesus pronounced judgment, if you can recall, upon entire cities. He will, coming up in chapter 13, preach judgment against the religious elite. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. Both Jesus and Jeremiah preached judgment. Still others thought a fourth and final answer that Jesus was one of the prophets. God spoke through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, promising, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. So public polling yielded many opinions. There were many views about who this Jesus was. But look at verse 15. What is Jesus up to? It is the question that matters most. But who do you say I am? Your entire eternity hinges upon how you answer this question. You can get a lot of questions wrong. You cannot get this one wrong. Peter as he often did, he steps forward and he speaks almost on behalf of the group. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is about as strong a confession as we've seen yet in Matthew's gospel. There's a certain force about what Peter said. There's a driving punch. In the Greek, the definite article punctuates what Peter says four times. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. You can feel him moving along in that statement. Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ. This is from a, that old Hebrew word, Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three types of people who were anointed. There were prophets and priests and kings. Jesus is the preeminent of each of them. There is no greater prophet. There is no greater priest. There is no greater king. And Peter identifies Jesus as the son of the living God. He is deity, divinity. He is no idol. He's not fashioned by the hands of men or created in the minds of men. He's the son of God. And he sent his son, God did, into this world and Peter points to Jesus and says, he is him. In verse 17, Peter receives a high commendation for this. This should be an encouragement to us if you've been tracking with these disciples. As lost as they can be in their understanding of Jesus, it's so great when they come up and they surface and they get it right. 
It's a breakthrough moment. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you, son of John or son of Jonah. And he acknowledges even to Peter, all, all glory belongs to God. This did not come from you. This came from God the Father. So I want to ask you then this morning, who do people say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? I did an informal poll, and I got a number of answers, as you might imagine. Listen to some of these answers. Asked, who do you say Jesus is? Someone said he is a liberal Jew. Someone else says he's a man born to poor homeless parents. Jesus was a prophet. As a man of faith in humanity, he had much to give. Someone else said, if Jesus was the Son of God, the God of the Old Testament, then the apple certainly fell very far from the tree. Jesus was a kind, gentle prophet. His papa was a horrible, cruel, vengeful man, and still is if he exists. One answer seems more contemporary in its view of Jesus. He was a radical, nonviolent revolutionary who hung around with lepers, hookers, and crooks, who never spoke English, wasn't American, was anti-death penalty, anti-capitalist, anti-wealth, anti-public prayer, but never anti-gay, anti-birth control, or anti-abortion. But the question this morning is, who do you say Jesus is? Remember, how you answer this question It determines where you live forever. For all of us live forever somewhere. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the anointed one? Not just is he the prophet, is he your prophet? Does he alone speak with the highest authority of truth? Is he your priest? Do you go through him alone to God? And is he your king? Does he rule over every last blade of grass in your kingdom? Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe that he is the Son of God? Do you make him fully God? Does all worship and recognition do him, get received by him? You see, when we get a little lost, it's helpful to come back to this Jesus. And notice the simplicity of this. It doesn't need to be complicated. In fact, when we struggle with sin and when we struggle with suffering, sometimes we need simplicity. We can rediscover words like like Christ and and Son of God, coming back to this God-man who is both of them. Rediscover the, the powerful truths of who Jesus is when you get a little lost. Secondly, remember the program of Jesus. In verses 18 through 20, we see this program of Jesus. Jesus continues, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, Peter just made a significant statement about Jesus. 
And Peter now returns it in kind. He makes a significant statement about Peter. Jesus reveals his program, what what he intends to do in the future. But verses 18 through 20, I've got to tell you, they raise quite a few questions. In fact, throughout church history, these three verses have raised at least three interpretive questions. And that's how we're going to handle them this morning. We're going to work our way through each of these three verses, answering a large question that looms through each verse. Verse 18, on what is the church built, that's a big question from church history. Verse 19, who has what authority? And in verse 20, why the big secret? Well, looking at verse 18, on what is the church built, this is going to be a great place of debate between Catholics and Protestant Christians. The answer to this question has been so throughout history. Roman Catholics, in fact, see this passage and read Peter as the first pope. So the question that we need to answer here, is this church built upon Peter the person, or is it built upon his confession? Those tend to be the two most popular views of the passage. Well, I believe in this passage, it's best to see Peter as the rock on which Christ built his church. Jesus makes a play on words. Now, we don't see it as much in English, but it's there in the Greek. In Greek, Peter is the Petros. Peter, you hear the word Peter, Petros. Peter is the Petros or the rock. And then you also have the the Petras, the little rock. And this play on words that Jesus intends, it doesn't work if Jesus is referring to anything other than Peter as that which he will build his church. Moreover, in this passage, the word this, it most likely refers back to a subject close by, upon this rock. He's probably going to refer back to something very close to what is beside the word this in the passage, rather than going all the way back to Peter's confession. And finally, the Bible tells us elsewhere that Jesus builds his church on the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. I believe Eric read that today. God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. But I contend that where Catholics go now with this identification of Peter is wrong. There's a number of problems with labeling Peter as the first pope. There's a number of problems with labeling some kind of unbroken chain of popes that come after Peter. One of commentators observe that this text says nothing about Peter's successors. It says nothing about his infallibility. It says nothing about his exclusive authority. In fact, to arrive at those conclusions, one has to, to almost invent them. You're not going to find them in the Bible. Second, Peter was not an infallible man. And that's a claim that is made of popes. Now, to be careful here and to understand the Catholic belief, the Catholics are going to teach that the pope is infallible at certain times. Quote, when in a definitive act he teaches something concerning faith and morals. Now, logically, according to that definition, when Pope Francis, for example, is not doing that, if he's not communicating something concerning faith or morals, then he is fallible. And that could explain some of the crazy things that he says. 
But I contend that the Pope is fallible all the time, and I do that because he's a human being. And I say that he even gets his doctrine wrong, these areas that are claimed to be infallible. And again, remember what I'm operating out of. I'm operating out of a worldview that sees Scripture alone as authority, not Scripture plus tradition. I think it's important to note that there was a problem with Peter's infallibility. He was a fallible man. Peter made errors in his teaching. If you recall over in the book of Galatians, in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul confronts Peter. When he came to Antioch, the Bible says, Paul opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Peter had some, some doctrinal issues. What he was doing in that room that day with eating with the Jews but not the Gentiles, creating disunity in the church that flowed from a certain doctrine, from a certain wrong belief. And in just a few verses, Jesus will label him Satan and a stumbling block. And Peter was not the first pope, and he's no more infallible than the current one. Now, thirdly, it's important to note here in this passage, when this debate happens or the question's answered, the office of the pope is not an unbroken line. This is a claim often made by Roman Catholics. Look out through history. History documents removals of popes and dismissals of popes. At one point in history, there were three different popes all claiming to be the one true pope. In summary, verse 18 can refer to Peter as the rock on which Christ can build his church, but it can do so without all of the extra Catholic dogma. And we can just take its meaning at face value, and we can appreciate most of all what Christ predicts. Jesus used Peter. Jesus used Peter. This is the I'm starting to sink in water, Peter. I can't understand the teaching of Jesus, Peter. I'm going to straighten Jesus out in verse 27, Peter. I'm blessed in verse 17, but Satan in verse 23, Peter. And this is denied Jesus three times, Peter. This is the Peter on which Christ will build his church. Not because Peter's infallible, not because he's a pope, because Christ is God. It is all about God using people like Peter, fallible men, to build his church. Numerous apostles, in fact, are going to be used to lay the foundation. We read that in Ephesians. None of these apostles pointed to themselves. None pointed to their office. None even pointed to the church. They all pointed to Christ. And what Christ reveals is that he's going to take these men He's going to take a guy like Peter, and he's going to birth something wholly new, something called the church. Now, it may be hard for us to understand the significance of this, standing where we do at this point in history. But at the time, this was huge. This is the first mention of anything like it. We encounter the word church or the word assembly for the first time in verse 18. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And he says that the gates of Hades will not defeat it. His program, we might say, is to perfect his power in the weakness of men. Question number two, verse 19, who has what authority? I believe, again, this is a passage that concerns authority. 
You see the word keys there. Keys represent authority. Keys represent some kind of access. Some of you know this. You've felt this. You have children turned 16. With great joy, with fear and trembling, you've given them the keys. You've given them authority over a 2,600-pound vehicle that travels 80 miles an hour. So who gets the keys in this passage? Well, at least Peter does. This whole idea of loosing and binding, this is going to be a little more tricky. In Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church happens. It happens at Pentecost, and the book of Acts will then record what happens as the church is birthed and grows. Christ is going to reveal his will, and he's going to reveal his word, and Peter will be instrumental in this. He's given authority by Jesus. In fact, at Pentecost, it's Peter who proclaims the gospel. All who respond to that proclamation in in faith and repentance, they are part of the church. Even later in Acts 10, he's going to declare what foods are clean and unclean. He and other apostles are going to receive a certain amount of delegated authority from Jesus. Well, in this program of the Lord, I contend that you and I have a a similar authority, but a, a lesser authority. We're not apostles. And before I talk about what exactly, what authority we might have in terms of loosing and binding, I want to say what this is not. You and I don't have the authority to command diseases. We don't have the authority to command angels. We don't have the authority to heal with a word or with a touch. The final decision about who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, that authority does not lie with us. But the authority we do have, it's an authority established by the word. In other words, we share the gospel. If someone believes in the gospel, they accept that. We have authority to say, you can be assured of heaven because you believe upon Jesus. Likewise, if someone rejects that message, we have authority to say, you are not assured of heaven until you repent. You and I are stewards of truth. We have the complete word of God in our Bibles. It's final. We hold all things up to that. We are able to determine what is true and what is not true based on the Bible, based on that limited authority. So in his program, in this program of Jesus, he gives authority to his apostles. And I would argue he gives it to Christians on a lesser degree in our day. Well, thirdly and finally in this section, I want to look at the verse, thir- verse 20 and ask, why the big secret? It's a bit of a curious thing, is it not, that Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell people about me? I mean, why would Jesus do this? Some call this the messianic secret. I mean, clearly by now, word is out. People know about who Jesus is. <laughs> he's healed crowds. He's fed crowds. They know about Jesus. Even his teaching amazed them, if you can recall at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. People were amazed by his teaching. Now, in a moment, we're going to read verse 21, and that speaks of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And this is the reason Jesus came. He came to die for the sins of his people. He didn't come for social change. He didn't come for equity or equality. He didn't come for human rights. 
nothing can detract him from his mission. I believe that's the point of his statement. This is why he wants people, or this is why he wants his program to remain quiet. Now, don't misunderstand this. The gospel was spoken by his apostles, by his disciples at the time to come. But at least for the time being, it was not to be. And don't misunderstand me either. It is not a secret for you and I to keep now. We are not to keep this quiet. In fact, I wonder how Jesus might speak, verse 20, to you and I if he were here this morning. He warned Emmanuel that they should tell everyone that he was the Christ. This program of Jesus should embolden us that he is going to build his church, that he's been building his church without any hindrance or without any interference in complete coordination with his father exactly as planned. He's going to build his church. What a reassurance. It's not your job. It's not my job. This is not a church that belongs to you. It's not a church that belongs to me. It's a church that belongs to Christ. And he'll build it. And he tells us that as he does this, it will not be overpowered. That's an important truth for our day. Because it feels like the loudest voices are the ones against the church. The darkest forces seem to be winning. But mark his words. He says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Imagine if we lived like this were true. I sometimes wonder if we don't spend more time wondering about what the enemy's going to do to us, fearing the political left, worried about death, worried about disease. What if we worried about the church? Have you ever been attacked by a gate? It's supposed to be a silly question. I mean, has your pit bull ever attacked a gate trying to break into your house? Have you ever seen footage of a gate robbing a 7-Eleven? These are ridiculous thoughts. Gates are on hinges. Gates open and close. The gates of Hades are humongous, and they are powerful. And within them, they hold the souls of our children and our spouses and our loved ones from our holiday gatherings. Gates keep within them our best friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. Gates don't attack us. We attack them. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? If we go along with his program, if we act with the type of power and authority he's given us, if we stop keeping him a secret, we will be used by him to fulfill his promise. That is, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. So this morning, I'm not asking if the kingdom of Christ is going to rescue hellbound souls from the gates of Hades. I know it is. I'm asking, are you part of that? Because I hope that his program emboldens you. Not to live in fear, not to be worried, but to be strong and to be courageous and to live as if one is empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ. To go out there and go after those gates. Well, thirdly, I want us to see this passion of Jesus. Verses 21 through 23, our last few verses, it's the passion of Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside 
and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. I entitled this third point, The Passion of Jesus. Not the the passion of his rebuke necessarily, but his suffering and death. We often speak of his suffering and death as the passion of Jesus. And what Jesus does here is he drops more news, yet more news, on unsuspecting disciples. Verse 21 is the first prediction of his death. In the chapters to come, there will be more predictions. We might say perhaps he's ramping up that revelation a bit. And what's most shocking about this revelation is, of course, his death, that that Jesus would die. And for Peter, this is an unexpected blindside. And so much so, it looks like he missed the end of verse 21, that Jesus would be raised up on the third day. I I get it. I mean, this happens, doesn't it? We can be so taken by part of a headline or or a piece of bad news that we've we've missed the good news or, or the other part of that story. But it's also shocking because so much of what Jesus shares here ought to be good news. It should be good. Jerusalem is a good place. It's the center of Jewish life. Psalm 87 calls it the city of God. Jesus will be killed in Jerusalem? Worse yet, most surprising, it's that the the most respected figures in Judaism will do it. The elders were the overseers of Jewish religion. The the chief priests, they were the, the holiest among them. And the scribes were great interpreters of the law. They would cause the suffering and death of Jesus? Well, Peter's having none of this. And let me tell you, if you find yourself rebuking Jesus, you've crossed the line somewhere. This is exactly what Peter did in verse 23. He rebukes Jesus. In our next chapter, chapter 17, that word's going to be used of how Jesus speaks to demons. This is not a good look for Peter. And somehow, I don't exactly know how this works, Jesus addresses Satan. I don't believe that Peter was possessed by Satan, but in some way, Jesus saw his influence on Peter. Someone's observed here that that Peter interfered in the very thing that would save his soul from hell. In other words, we need the death of Christ. We need the atonement of sin. But for Peter, his Messiah, his Messiah doesn't suffer. That is not his fate. That is not to be the fate of God's Messiah. It's not what he should do. It's somehow, Jesus, this cannot be the plan. The English preacher G. Campbell Morgan said, quote, the man who loves Jesus but who shuns God's method is a stumbling block to him. A believer, God's plan, at least in part for you and I, is suffering, just like Christ suffered in ways that are similar, in ways that are different. Suffering is part of his plan. If suffering is not part of your plan as a believer, you need a new plan. Next time in our passage, in no uncertain terms, Jesus will tell us what it means to follow him. He's going to tell us what it means to be a Christian, and he's going to speak of the carrying of a cross, 
And we'll unpack what all of that means. But a cross is God's plan for us. And a cross was God's plan for Jesus. Jesus was to suffer. He was to be killed. But he was to raise again on the third day. And suffering like him. It's part of the Christian life. Remember that as you're suffering in this life, if you get a little lost this year and you're, you're suffering, remember that it was part of the life of Christ, that he too suffered. So in conclusion, if you're feeling a little lost this year at all, look to Christ. Look to the Jesus we explored this morning. And rediscover his plan. Remember that he's the anointed one. As the prophet, he is the source of all that is true. We live in a world of lies and a world of deception. We have objective truth. We have true north. We have Jesus. And as a priest, he intercedes for us. You and I are forgiven because of Jesus. He lives to shepherd us, to pastor us. And as the king, he rules over all things. Even when we're in the midst of our wilderness, Jesus is king. Remember his program, his promise to build his church. There's a reassurance here that that though we get lost, the church will continue to be built. Nothing's going to prevent that. And remember, lastly, his passion, that he suffered like us. And he suffered unlike us. And he suffered for us. You know, in 2022, you and I will get a little lost. But the Christ you'll discover in the midst of that lostness, he's an amazing God and a merciful God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you meet us in the midst of our lostness. We don't try to get lost. We don't, we don't want to get lost, but life is hard. And we suffer and we sin. But there you are, and you are a, an amazing Savior and an ever-present God. I pray for your people, for this church in the year ahead. And as we enter the, the fog of life, Lord, I pray that, oh, we would remember your forgiveness and your, your love for the truth you give us in your word. That we would remember that our trials are temporary and that one day we will be with you. I do pray for us um, as we conclude our service that we would um, reflect upon these truths and that your spirit would warm our hearts toward them. We sing to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.